Letters from English settlers living on the frontier of northern New England in the 1670s and 80s would often describe the deprivation and unimaginable slaughter they had witnessed there. They contained vivid descriptions of men, women, and children, European and native alike, brutally maimed and hacked to death, people tortured, captured as hostages or sold as slaves, livestock mercilessly killed, houses and crops burned or destroyed, their words seemingly animated with fear. The English referred to it as the Eastwards, or the Eastward Frontier. It was a swath of rugged wilderness stretching from the Atlantic coast across what we now call Maine and New Hampshire. It had been home to Native Americans of the Wabanaki, sometimes also referred to as the Abenaki, confederacy of tribes for centuries. But by the mid-17th century, there were a few thousand enterprising European settlers living there as well. At first, they scratched out a difficult existence in sawmills or as fishermen or fur trappers. But by the second half of the century, the area's abundant natural resources had helped the frontier become an economic engine for New England. The increasing encroachment of European settlers into the region inevitably led to growing conflict with the Wabanaki. And when the first of two devastating wars erupted in the region in 1675, a tinderbox had been indicted, setting off decades of intermittent and often barbaric conflict. So what does any of this have to do with the Salem Witch Trials? Quite a bit, actually. Despite occurring years before and over a hundred miles away, a number of people who were directly involved in the Witch Trials, including Abigail Hobbs, Mercy Lewis, George Burroughs, and several others, lived on the Eastward Frontier during these years of conflict, experiencing the fear, violence, and trauma for themselves. Moreover, the tales of the English who lived there were readily passed along to others through letters and personal recollections, further stoking fear among the English and spreading it across New England and beyond. To help us explore the fascinating and unique connection between the frontier and the Salem Witch Trials, we are joined by the historian who first made the connection more than 20 years ago. Professor Mary Beth Norton is the Mary Donlin Alger Professor of American History Emerita at Cornell University. Her research focuses on gender and politics in early America, and she is the author of several books, including her groundbreaking work on the witch hysteria, In the Devil's Snare, The Salem Witchcraft Crisis of 1692. The region that we now know as Maine was originally settled by fishermen in the 1640s and 50s. But then as Massachusetts developed further, some people moved up from Massachusetts and started sawmills because they really needed timber and it became a great source of masts and spars 
for the English Navy in the late 17th century. Massachusetts, Boston in particular, and Salem began to develop big shipbuilding industries, and so they needed timber. And Maine was this great source of that. So people began to settle along the rivers and build sawmills. As they moved inland from along the rivers, they started to run up against the Wabanaki people who lived in villages along the rivers also, but who also traveled seasonally to do fishing in the spring, especially, and so forth. And so the English settlers were interrupting the movement of the local Wabanakis. Now, the local Wabanakis began to be dependent on the English settlers for things they wanted, like guns, ammunition, different kinds of metal goods, and some textiles, things they did not make themselves. And so there was, for years, a a very good trading relationship between the Wabanakis and the English settlers along the rivers. But as you can well imagine, clashes did begin to develop as more and more English settlers moved in and as the Wabanakis began to feel more and more threatened. But with more English settlers moving into Maine and New Hampshire, tensions continued to rise. And with the outbreak of King Philip's War in the southern part of New England in the mid-1670s, the Wabanaki were reluctantly drawn into the fight as well. The native people in the north got drawn into it inexorably. They really were not interested in being involved, but they got into it because refugees from the southern tribes after the war sought refuge with them, and they were not going to turn them away. And the local people began to be very suspicious of all these refugees from King Philip's War turning up in the villages uh, in Maine and New Hampshire. And they began to worry about the native people who were their neighbors and who are their trading partners. In fact, one of the things I detail in the book is some very treacherous behavior on the part of the English towards the natives, capturing people and sending them into Boston and then sending them into slavery in the Caribbean, which was devastating, which led the native people in the north to be mad and to start their own attacks on the New Englanders. King Philip's War caused enormous devastation across New England, including in the frontier of Maine and New Hampshire. And the situation remained tense even after the war was over. By the 1680s, conflict had flared up once again. And what we now call King William's War produced more fighting between the English and the Wabanaki, as well as the Wabanaki's French allies. The hostility was already there that started the Second Indian War, especially when the New Englanders began to repopulate the settlements that they had abandoned in the late 1670s. And they began in the early 1680s, they began to move back. And even more people came in, even more sawmills were set up, even more settlements were established. And so even further clashes developed. And that war actually continued till 1699. And it was not until the 1720s and 1730s that English people began to move back into Maine. The settlements were so devastated by what happened in the Second Indian War. But Professor Norton only decided to examine these conflicts once she became aware of the unique connection that they had with the Salem Witch Trials. It seemed that many who had lived through this tumultuous period on the frontier later became directly involved in the witches' area in Salem. 
I began to realize as I was researching Salem witchcraft that there was this main extension or this main and New Hampshire extension of the Indian War in the South and that it was crucial and that it went on longer, in fact, than anyone seemed to ever indicate. There was almost constant warfare with different groups of Wabanaki peoples. Throughout this entire period, I knew from other people's work that a few of the so-called afflicted girls were main refugees. And I had noted it in my notes as something I might want to look into, but I had no idea that it was going to take over the book, which it did. As I began to realize, as I was reading the documents, that Maine was cropping up various places. I looked for histories of the northern part of King Philip's War and of King William's War, which really did not have a part in the South. It was all in the North. And I couldn't find any. So I went to the documents and I started looking at those materials. And it was one of the greatest revelations of my historian's life because I saw so many names I recognized from the Salem trials. I was blown away. There is no other way to describe it. So many of the people who were involved in the Salem witch trials, accused, accusers, the judges, you name it, were all involved in Maine, especially in the period when the war restarted in late 1688. And of course, the trauma of those who experienced this terrible conflict did not easily leave those who came to Salem. They brought it with them, sharing their harrowing stories with others along the way. Some of these people who became accusers and confessors in 1692 was able to reconstruct their experiences when they were younger along the main frontier. One of the most dramatic scenes I was able to reconstruct had to do with the woman known as Sarah Churchwell, who was the granddaughter of one of the wealthiest men in Maine. And the family took refuge from an Indian attack in a local garrison house. That was what they did uh, in Maine. They built houses particularly to thwart Indian attacks. And she and her family, when she was probably eight or nine, took refuge in one of these garrison houses. They abandoned their house, which was then burned to the ground almost immediately by the native people. And while they were in this garrison house with about 30 or 40 other people, the Indians were going to attack, and they did attack. They attacked from the outside of the garrison house. Various men who were firing back from inside the garrison house were injured, but then the Native people decided they were going to burn the house down. And so they set up a fire wagon. This must have been terrifying for the people inside the house. They put a fire on a wagon and were pushing it towards the house, and then it kind of turned over and it fell into a mud hole, and they couldn't do it. And so this attack was thwarted. And eventually, about a day later, the Native people who were attacking the house gave up and left. As you can well imagine, everybody who was in that house must have been so traumatized and everybody left. I mean, nobody tried to stay after that. They just abandoned the area. Those are the kinds of things that these accusers brought with them, the memories that they would have had 
from their childhood on the main frontier. And no wonder, therefore, that they were suffering from something that today we would call PTSD. Like all good Puritans, they believed that everything happened for a reason. When bad things happened to them, or when good things happened to them, they attributed it to God's providence. God's providence could be good or bad. So when nothing but bad things were happening to them in the Indian War, they attributed that to God. Therefore, God was chastising them for some fault, and they sort of struggled to figure out what those faults might be, and different ministers came up with different ideas about what their faults were, but they all agreed that these bad things were happening, they were losing these battles, they all saw this as God chastising them for their faults. As the Puritans viewed it, it was wanton brutality caused by agents of the devil, an existential threat to their very way of being. How could such a thing not nurture their fears? It's a fascinating and important piece of context to this complex and multifaceted story. Thanks for joining us. Be sure to like, subscribe, and share our podcast with your friends. We'll see you next time.